Welcome to True Enough. We are your hosts. I am Catherine Duvall. And I am Brandon McCowan. True Enough is a podcast about true crime, both solved and unsolved. It's about notorious crimes. It's also about mysteries and the paranormal. This week's podcast is about the disappearance and murder of Lacey Peterson and her unborn child. The murder of Lacey Peterson is a tragic, heartbreaking case involving deceit, manipulation, rumor, adultery, and murder. Lacey Peterson was 27 years old and eight months pregnant with her first child when she disappeared on Christmas Eve in 2002. December 24th, 2002. The eight-month pregnant Lacey Peterson is reported missing from her Modesto, California home. Her husband, Scott Peterson, says he came home from a fishing trip in the Berkeley Marina and his wife is nowhere to be found. December 28th, authorities search water near the Berkeley Marina for the first time. December 31st, Modesto police shift their focus in the case to foul play. Quote, we have not ruled out other possibilities, end quote, homicide detective John Bueller says. January 3rd, 2003, Modesto police ask the public for help verifying the whereabouts of Scott Peterson in the days before Christmas. In Berkeley, police spend hours combing through the waters near the marina. January 14th, authorities and friends expand the search to Southern California. January 17th, Lacey Peterson's family and friends hold a news conference to demand Scott Peterson tell authorities everything he knows about the case. January 18th, as the suspicion of Scott Peterson grows, authorities investigate his whereabouts in connection with the first disappearance of a San Luis Obispo woman in 1996 when Scott and Lacey Peterson lived there. Authorities later determined he had nothing to do with the second missing woman. January 19th, Scott Peterson brings search for missing wife to Los Angeles, where he and his family distribute flyers to volunteers at a hotel. January 23rd, Lacey Peterson's family says Scott Peterson told authorities he had been involved with another woman. January 24th, Amber Fry, a massage therapist from Fresno, comes forward and confirms she had a romantic relationship with Scott Peterson. January 28th, in a televised interview, Scott Peterson admits that he had a relationship with Fry and says he told his wife about it. Quote, it wasn't anything that would break us apart, end quote, he says. February 5th, Lacey Peterson's family steps up their criticism of Scott Peterson saying he sold his pregnant wife's car and considered selling the couple's house. February 10th, Lacey Peterson's expected due date. February 17th, Scott Peterson's mother, Jackie, tells the Associated Press her family believes kidnappers abducted Lacey Peterson with intentions of holding her captive until she delivered the baby. February 18th, authorities issue a search warrant for the Petersons' home in Modesto, where they remove possible evidence and take measurements. March 6th, Modesto police officially declare the case a homicide. March 12th, authorities search San Francisco Bay again. April 14th, the body of a woman and a male fetus that washed ashore in Richmond, California, are found. April 18th, Police in San Diego arrest Scott Peterson, who is found carrying a large amount of cash and his brother's passport. Attorney General Bill Lockyer says bodies found in Richmond are those of Lacey Peterson and her unborn son. April 21st, Scott Peterson pleads not guilty to charges of murdering his wife and unborn child. Lacey's family holds a press conference thanking the public for their support since their daughter's disappearance. April 25th, Stanislaus County District Attorney 
James Barzelton announces he will seek the death penalty against Scott Peterson. April 28th, Lacey's father, Dennis Rocha, in a televised interview describes difficulties his family has faced since Lacey disappeared. Quote, we'll never be the same without Lacey, end quote, says Rocha. Quote, it took a big chunk out of us, end quote. May 2nd, Scott Peterson hires high-profile attorney Mark Garagos to take over his case. May 4th, thousands of people flood Modesto's First Baptist Church for Lacey's memorial service. May 9th, Judge Al Jaralami seals court papers containing evidence police used to obtain the warrant to arrest Scott Peterson and conduct another search of his home. News media learn investigators tapped Scott Peterson's phone two weeks after Lacey's disappearance. May 15th, Lacey's autopsy is completed and sealed. May 16th, Peterson's lawyers go public with the theory that satanic cult members kidnapped and murdered Lacey. May 19th, Amber Fry hires attorney Gloria Allred. May 22nd, police search San Francisco Bay again. Scott's lawyers claim to have located a mystery woman who can prove Scott Peterson's innocence. May 27th, Peterson appears in court with a new haircut. Prosecutors order to provide Scott Peterson's attorneys with three recordings of wiretapped phone calls. May 29th, a statement is released indicating Lacey's family has hired attorneys to retrieve a wedding dress, baby crib, and other personal belongings from Peterson's Modesto home. After reports from Lacey and her unborn son's autopsies are leaked to the media, prosecutors reversed their decision and asked for autopsy reports to be made public. Leaked information reveals Lacey's fetus was found with plastic tape around its neck and a major gash on its torso. May 30th, Jairalami orders autopsy reports to remain sealed on grounds they could hamper investigation. He also orders an end to autopsy leaks. Lacey's friends and family remove personal items from her home against the wishes of the Peterson family. June 2nd, the defense team indicates it is searching for a man named Donnie as the possible killer and says a man may be linked to a mysterious brown van spotted in the area of the Peterson's house on December 24th. June 4th, the Stanislaus County DA's office says it has found the brown van. Prosecutors examine it and decide it has no connection to the case. The defense team inspects it as well. June 6th, in a rare show of emotion, Scott Peterson appears to cry as the judge decides to keep autopsy reports of his slain wife sealed. Jairalami denies the request to issue a gag order on the lawyers involved in the case. June 12th, Jairalami issues a gag order preventing lawyers, police officers, and potential witnesses from discussing the Peterson case in public. The same day, Judge Roger Boschesny rules that search warrants and police documents related to the case should be made public, but delays their unsealing until July 8th to allow for further appeals. June 15th, a fellow inmate tells the Modesto Bee that Scott Peterson has been receiving fan mail in jail mostly from women. June 16th, Garagos asks Jairalami's gag order to be lifted on the grounds that Fry's attorney, Allred, had already violated the order without penalty. June 26th, Judge Jairalami postpones Peterson's preliminary hearing until September 9th, after prosecutors say witnesses would not be available for the previously scheduled date of July 16. July 24th, Jairalami allows the defense team to conduct its own examination of the bodies of Lacey Peterson and her unborn son. July 30th, a state appeals court rules that Peterson's search warrants remain sealed. August 5th, the defense claims Scott Peterson turned down an offer by Stanislaus County DA to exchange a promise not to seek the death penalty for a confession. August 22nd, the Stanislaus County coroner announces that the bodies of Lacey Peterson and her unborn son have been released, but does not say to whom. Later that day, sources tell Fox News that Scott Peterson had admitted, then denied, involvements 
in his wife's disappearance in a wiretapped telephone conversation with his then-girlfriend, Amber Fry. August 29th, Lacey Peterson and her unborn son are buried in a private ceremony. September 2nd, Jairalami reschedules the preliminary hearing from September 9th to October 20th to allow the defense more time to gather evidence. September 21st, the Fresno Bee reports that a jailed inmate told investigators Scott Peterson had met with him in Fresno in November of 2002 to discuss possibly kidnapping his wife, Lacey. Peterson's family tells Fox News that Scott and Lacey Peterson were in San Diego at that time. October 15th, sources tell Fox News that telephone logs show that Scott Peterson called Fry hundreds of times after his wife's disappearance, contradicting his claims that Fry pursued him. October 29th, the preliminary hearing is finally held. An FBI expert testifies that mitochondrial DNA tests had loosely linked a strand of hair found embedded in a pair of needle-nose pliers on Scott Peterson's boat to Lacey. October 31st, Lacey Peterson's sister testifies that Scott had told her he planned to play golf, not go fishing, on December 24th. November 3rd, a defense expert testifies that mitochondrial DNA tests, which cannot link evidence to a specific individual, are scientifically flawed. November 4th, the defense suggests police planted evidence in Scott Peterson's home, truck, and boat. His friends and relatives tell Fox News he had several affairs, which Lacey was aware of. November 5th, proceedings are not held because Garagos needs to deal with a deadlock jury in Los Angeles. November 6th, a police detective drops two bombshells in testimony that Scott Peterson told Fry he was a recent widower on December 9th, 2002, two weeks before his wife's disappearance and that Peterson had a handgun in his truck when police responded to his missing person report. November 12th, Detective Al Burkini, in testimony, admits he urged Scott Peterson's family and neighbors, including Fry, to ask Peterson leading questions in the hopes that he would implicate himself in Lacey's death. November 13th, Detective Philip Owen testifies Lacey's body was found in tan pants as her sister testifies she had been wearing December 23rd. Scott had said she was wearing black pants the next morning. Detective Brocchini testifies Scott drove to the Berkeley Marina three times in early January and looked out over the water, twice on days police were searching in the bay. November 14th, Fox News learns Garagos's plans to subpoena Amber Fry one day after Alred announced the prosecution would not be calling her client as a witness during the preliminary hearing. Detective Owen testifies he ignored a tip that a woman resembling Lacey had been seen walking a dog near the Peterson home mid-morning on December 24th. November 17th, prosecution pathologist Dr. Brian Peterson, no relation, testifies he could not determine Lacey's cause of death. Judge Jairalami rules mitochondrial DNA analysis can be admitted as evidence. November 18th, Jairalami rules that Peterson will stand trial on double murder charges. Proceedings are scheduled to begin January 26th. December 15th, Garagos, citing a, quote, lynch mob atmosphere, end quote, tainted against his client, files a motion for a change of venue to move the trial out of Stanislaus County. December 23rd, Garagos files an argument to seek dismissal of both murder charges against Peterson, claiming Modesto police never seriously investigated other suspects or possibilities. January 8, 2004, Judge Jairalami grants Garagos's change of venue, but does not specify where the trial will take place. January 13th, California State Stanislaus students tell the Modesto B they faked data used in a regional opinion survey that Jairalami cited as part of his decision to move the trial. January 14th, a different judge rejects Garagos's motion to dismiss both charges against Peterson. January 20th, Jairalami rejects a prosecution request to keep the trial in Modesto County. He rules it will be held 
in suburban San Mateo County, south of San Francisco. January 21st, retired Contra Costa County Judge Richard Arnason, famous for having presided over the 1970s trial of militant radical Angela Davis, is selected to preside over the Peterson trial. The prosecution asks for the trial scheduled to begin January 26th to be postponed for two weeks. January 22nd, the prosecution exercises its option to remove Arnason as the trial judge, claiming he would be biased against the state's case. The Chief Justice of California Supreme Court is expected to name a new judge within a week. January 23rd, jury selection, the first phase of the actual trial, is postponed by at least a week by Jairalami as the state tries to find another judge to preside in Redwood City. January 27th, Alfred A. DeLucci, a retired Alameda County judge, is appointed by the state's chief justice to preside over the Peterson trial. January 30th, San Mateo County announces it will charge media outlets $51,000 each for reserved spots outside the county courthouse. February 2nd, Judge DeLucci bans cameras from the Peterson trial courtroom and delays the trial by a week in response to a defense request citing Garagos's obligations to a murder case in Southern California. February 4th, Vivian Mitchell, one of the three people who told police they had seen Lacey Peterson alive in Modesto the morning of December 24th, 2002, dies of natural causes. February 5th, the Peterson defense team announces it is ready for trial. February 9th, Judge DeLucci rules witness lists and names of potential jurors in the Peterson case remain sealed. February 17th, DeLucci rules the prosecution can use data collected from GPS trackers secretly placed in Peterson's vehicles. February 23rd, DeLucci rules defense will not be allowed to subpoena Stanislaus County Superior Judge Ray Ladine about Ladine's issuance of a warrant allowing a wiretap of Peterson's phones. DeLucci also schedules jury selection to begin March 1st. February 25th, Superior Court Judge Roger Bouchesny rules Scott Peterson can sell his story for book or movie deals. Judge DeLucci rules the trial jury will not be sequestered and reschedules jury selection for March 4th. March 2nd, Judge DeLucci rules prosecutors can use evidence from wiretaps on Peterson's phones and can introduce testimony that dogs tracked Lacey Peterson's scent to the Berkeley Marina. March 4th, prospective jurors begin filling out screening questionnaires. March 22nd, Judge DeLucci allows Scott's pre-arrest TV interviews to be used as evidence in opening statements in a trial set for May 17th. May 27th, 12 jurors are selected for Scott's trial, six men and six women, who appear to range in age from 20s to 60s, all said they would be willing to sentence Scott to death if he was convicted of killing his wife and unborn son. June 1, 2004, Scott's trial begins. The trial commences with the prosecution's opening statement, which asserts that Scott sought a responsibility-free life by killing his wife and soon-to-be-born son and dumping her weighted body in the bay. The following day, Garagos contends that his client's boorish behavior is hardly proof of murder and offers a preview of medical evidence that points to the baby being born after Lacey's reported disappearance. June 23rd, a juror is removed. Two days after juror Justin Falconer is spotted speaking to Lacey's brother outside the courtroom, Judge Alfred DeLucci dismisses the juror. He also shoots down the defense's request for a mistrial due to unfavorable news reports, noting, quote, we have to live with the media, end quote. August 10, 2004, Frey delivers her crucial testimony, taking the stand for the first of her seven days. Fry, represented by celebrity lawyer Gloria Allred, recalls the details of her fairy tale first date with Scott. She goes on to relate his claims of being a widower and numerous other lies, her accounts bolstered by the 12 hours of recorded phone calls played for the jury. October 21st, 
the defense's medical expert fumbles on the stand. Following through on his opening promise, Garagos calls on a medical expert who testifies that Connor died no earlier than December 29, 2002, indicating that Lacey was still alive after being reported missing. But the appearance ends badly for the witness, who concedes he relied on hearsay to pinpoint the date of a pregnancy test, and at one point asks the cross-examining prosecutor to, quote, cut me some slack, end quote. November 3rd, jury deliberations begin. After five months and more than 180 witnesses called to the stand, the jury is left to determine the fate of Scott. On November 9th, juror Fran Gorman is dismissed for misconduct, later revealed to be for conducting separate research, and is replaced by alternate Rachel Nice, whose name would resurface on appeals down the road. The following day, Foreman Gregory Jackson is also removed, reportedly at his own request, after repeated clashes with his fellow jurors. November 12, 2004. Scott is found guilty. Despite the absence of a murder weapon or any physical evidence tying Scott to the deceased, he is found guilty of first-degree murder for the death of Lacey and second-degree murder for the death of Connor. The announcement sparks audible gasps in the courtroom, along with a roar of celebration from the crowd gathered outside. December 13th, the jury recommends a death sentence. Following 11 hours of deliberations, the clerk announces to a quiet courtroom that the six-man, six-woman jury had unanimously voted to fix the penalty at death. March 16th, 2005, a judge sentences Scott to death. Judge DeLucci sentences Scott to death by lethal injection, but his announcement is overshadowed by the emotion that erupts when Lacey's family is given the opportunity to speak, with parents from both sides yelling and Lacey's brother telling the convicted that he would strongly consider shooting him. Scott, who sits stoically through the charged affair, declines to deliver a statement before being shipped off to San Quentin State Prison. July 5th, 2012. Scott files an appeal. In a 423-page document submitted to the California Supreme Court, Scott's lawyer revives the complaint that the intensive publicity had eroded the possibility of his client receiving a fair trial. He also claims that Judge DeLucci had erred by excluding prospective jurors who opposed the death penalty but said they would consider imposing such a sentence, and that certain evidence, such as the findings of a police dog with a poor track record of success, should never have been admitted as evidence. November 24, 2015. Scott files a second appeal. The habeas corpus petition covers much of the same ground as Scott's previous appeal, with one glaring difference. It includes the revelation that Rachel Nice, one of the late trial juror replacements, had lied about an earlier involvement in a legal proceeding by failing to disclose that she had once been threatened by her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend while pregnant. August 24, 2020. Scott's death sentence is overturned. Agreeing with Scott's argument that prospective jurors were improperly dismissed for their opposition to the death penalty, but willingness to adhere to it, the California Supreme Court overturns Scott's death sentence. However, the court rejects the stance that he was unable to receive a fair trial and upholds the murder conviction. On October 14, 2020, Scott's convictions are ordered re-examined. Focusing on the prejudicial misconduct of Nice's failure to disclose her previous legal entanglements, the California Supreme Court announces that the case will be sent back to San Mateo County Superior Court to determine whether a new trial is needed. October 23, 2020, prosecutors announced plans to pursue the same course of action. A Stanislaus County spokesman says that Assistant District Attorney Dave Harris intends to seek the death penalty for Scott again. Meanwhile, Peterson's attorney, Pat Harris, who worked alongside Garagos in the original trial, tells reporters that, quote, an innocent man has been sitting in jail for 15 years. It's time to get him out, end quote. November 6, 2020. Scott declines a speedy trial. 
appearing in a San Mateo Superior Court hearing via Zoom, Scott waives the right to a speedy trial. Kate, this was such an exhaustive case. (laughs) Yes, it was. I feel like our last case was so threadbare in the details, and this was the exact opposite. We took a... I made up for it with this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it's so expansive, and in this, our series is always based upon, you know, we take a we take a, a one episode deep dive as we can get in one episode. And th- then we give our theories and ask our questions and, and have our conclusions. And this is such an exhaustive case. So I want to focus on 10 different points in time of the case and the investigation. And you believe that Scott Peterson is innocent. I wouldn't go so far as to say that he is innocent. I believe he should have been found not guilty. Interesting. There is a difference. Okay. In line with that, I'm going to ask you a series of questions about certain points in this investigation and this case overall. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. why Scott Peterson is not guilty. Number one, why at the family gathering with Lacey's family two days before her disappearance... Did Scott Peterson frequently mention his plans to go golfing on Christmas Eve? But then, on the morning of, he decides instead to go boating in San Francisco Bay. Um, According to him and several investigators, he decided it was too cold to go golfing, so he decided to go fishing. So he decided at the last moment to go fishing that morning? Yeah, he had already had a a two-day fishing license that he purchased a couple days before. And to purchase that license, you have to apply for it, correct? I don't think there was an applying process. And so he does have to apply for it. He had to, he had to on application, determine... There's no application. He just purchased a fishing license. Doesn't have to say what days. It was a two-day fishing license. Why in the first few days after Lacey's disappearance did he lie to police and friends by continuing to say that he was golfing on Christmas Eve morning? That's actually not true. There were only three witnesses that came forward who said that Scott told them uh, he was uh, golfing instead of fishing, but there were 12 others who came forward and said that he told them he was going fishing. Uh, The three that said he was going to be golfing, it turns out they actually, during the trial, it was proven that they were not Uh, accurate statements. Um, One, in fact, came forward several months later uh, and changed his story to say that that, uh, Scott told them that he was golfing, not fishing. So that's actually not accurate. Why do you think he could not recall to police when he was questioned about the time he was fishing, the kind of fish he was fishing for, and the kind of bait he was using? The bait thing is interesting. That is true. I don't believe he was able to tell police what kind of bait he was using. However, he did tell police that he was fishing for sturgeon. And I believe there was some question uh, regarding the area that he was searching for, the kind of boat he was using, um, and things like that. And the boat, uh, mainly because he hadn't used it. Uh, he hadn't used that specific motor and he wasn't sure if it was going to work in salt water. Uh, but, um, but the bait is a mystery as to why he couldn't tell anyone that. Interesting. Next question. Why did Lacey's family not know about this boat? Why did his father not know about this boat? This boat was purchased on December 9th. And this is the same day that Scott Peterson tells Amber Fry that he was married, but he had, quote unquote, lost his wife. And he doesn't go into details, which she takes to mean that his wife had passed. Um, I know he did recently purchase the boat. The boat, His father did know about it. Um, Lacey had seen it and was in the presence of the boat. Um, I know that I I certainly don't live with my mother. I don't tell her everything I buy. Um, but as for the Amber Fry question, he was playing a, 
ruse with Amber because he doesn't want to tell his the woman he's cheating on his wife with that he's married because I guess he wants to keep cheating on his wife. I mean, do you think there's a weird coincidence in the timeline that on December 9th he purchases the boat and the day before that Amber Frey's friend that had set them up contacted Scott and says she knows that he's married and if she doesn't tell Amber, if he doesn't tell Amber that he's married, she will. I really think this is purely coincidence because um, the woman who confronts Scott and tells um, Scott that she's going to tell um, Amber that he's married, uh, that actually happened on the 9th, which is the same day that he purchases the boat. Um, I, I don't know the time frame. I don't know which happened first, but I really do think it's a coincidence. Scott had owned many boats. It would not be unusual that he would purchase one. Um, I really don't think that it's anything other than coincidence. Next question. When police first searched Scott and Lacey Peterson's house, they found the phone book open to a page featuring an ad for a defense lawyer. What are your thoughts on that? So that's an interesting question. Um, basically interesting because that actually came uh, from uh, the New York Post that a quote-unquote detective uh, made that discovery in their kitchen, though the detective is never named. Um, and there was, of all the photos that were taken of the house that day, there's not one photo that shows the phone book open to defense attorneys. Um, so that's, uh, that I just feel like that that's not accurate. Uh, if there was actual testimony from a detective who says that he saw that, that would be one thing, but it's never brought up at the trial. Um, I, I don't really think that that's a valid question. I'm not sure that that actually even happened since we don't know who saw it and there's no pictures of it. Why did Scott Peterson trade in Lacey Peterson's car before her body and the fetus of Connor was found? That is another interesting question. I do not have an answer for it is awfully creepy and it just does not look good. I'm not saying he is a super smart guy at all. I'm not even saying he's a nice guy. I'm not even saying he didn't do it. I'm saying he should not have been found guilty based on the evidence at the trial. So I guess my next question is the same answer in that. Why did Scott Peterson try to sell their house while Lacey Peterson was still considered missing? Uh, to my knowledge, he just made some inquiries about it. He didn't actually try to sell the house. He was asking about it. But when someone asked him why he was doing that, he needed money because he thought the police were going to arrest him. What are your thoughts on the pair of pliers police found on the boat, which had a strand of hair consistent with Lacey Peterson's connected to that pair of pliers? Uh, that's an interesting one. I do have to say I have rather long hair. It gets everywhere. Um, it gets on clothing. It could very easily have been transferred. It's, I mean, she had just been to see the boat sometime after December 9th, uh, saw the boat, walked by it. That is witnessed by uh, someone who uh, worked and I believe the next portion of the warehouse over because she came and asked to use their restroom. So that, uh, I would say simple transference. What's your explanation for the trail of Lacey's scent that police sniffer dogs found at the Berkeley Marina days after her disappearance, less than a mile from where Lacey's body eventually washed ashore? Were the details of Scott's whereabouts on Christmas Eve morning known to the public at that time? When did the, what, do you know what date the dog did the sniffing? It was a couple days uh, after her disappearance. Uh, I know um, a day or two after her disappearance, the police did go public and say, here's what Scott Peterson's boat looks like. Here's where he was fishing. We need someone to verify his 
whereabouts. And another note on that dog, that particular dog uh, failed its certification nine times before they used it. I don't, I don't even think that the dog was certified uh, at the time. On January 5th, 2003, police tail Peterson as he drives to Brickley Marina from Modesto in a rental car. He goes to the marina and stands in the pier watching out over the bay for about 10 minutes. He gets back in the rental car and drives home. And this is a 160-mile round trip. And the next day, he does the same thing. But on his way back this time, he drives home uh, and takes different routes, goes through parking lots, taking takes U-turns. And he's obviously trying, please see it, as he's obviously trying to lose a tail. And when he gets home, he calls Amber Fry and admits, that's when he admits his wife is Lacey Peterson, that's been missing. He never let anyone know he was there on these on these trips. What are your thoughts about these trips? Uh, first of all, he was never tailed by police. Uh, they put a GPS tracker in his truck. Um, that's how they knew that he was going there. And on one of the days that he was there, well, the other reason they know one of the days he was at the marina is the police were also there and saw him. Um, it's a weird explanation, but I think... I mean, I think he knew that the police were searching there and he was wondering if they were going to find his wife's body, not because he put it there, but because they were searching there. After Lacey's disappearance, but before her body was found, Scott many times refers to Lacey in the past tense. Like, for example, she was a wonderful person. Is this a sign that he already knows she's dead? What are your thoughts? I don't think so. I think it's a sign that she's not there. Unless you have been through that, you don't know how you're going to react. Granted, he had some weird reactions to things. He, he did some very strange things. Um, I'm not saying he's not an odd dude because he kind of seems like he is. I'm also not saying... I think that a lot of his activities were very suspicious. There are a lot of things that I can't explain, like the marina. Again, I'm not sure why that makes sense that he did that. Last question. The day in April 2003 when Lacey's body and the fetus of Connor are found in the San Francisco Bay, the media reports only at that time that the body of a woman and the baby have been found. That same day, before it's confirmed that these two are Lacey and Connor, Scott Peterson is located in a red Mercedes driving south toward Mexico, an hour away from the border, erratically, as again, if to lose anybody, might be tailing him. Police are able to stop him and find in the car camping gear, several sets of clothes, $15,000 in cash, his brother's driver's license. He says that he had all this stuff in the car because he was basically living out of it, but it was a car that had just recently been purchased, and also at the time he was actually living at his sister Susan's house in San Diego. What are your thoughts? Um, he was not driving towards the Mexican border. He was in San Diego. He was going to play golf with his father. Um, he did not have his brother's driver's license. He had his brother's passport. Um, and he apparently had the passport by accident, <clears throat> according to his sister anyway. And he had a big wad of cash because he had wanted to deposit a check or trade a check with somebody. I can't remember exactly now, uh, but all they had was cash. He didn't want the cash, but you know, whatever he had also dyed his hair. He was, you know, driving erratically because he was going to meet his dad for golf and he was constantly being tailed by the media. So according to him, he was trying to disguise himself and he was trying to get away from the media that he thought was following him, but that did turn out to be police who were following him. But he was not near the Mexican border. He was going to play golf, I think, at Torrey Pines, um, which is in San Diego. And that, that's been verified by the police that his dad did have a tea time and they had everything set to play golf. You don't think it could be both things? You don't think it could be? It very, it very well could be. It very well could be. I mean, I know I don't. Well, I mean, I have never been hounded by the media like that. I mean, he could not take two steps out of his door without getting pummeled by media. 
and that has to take a toll on you as well. So, I mean, I'm, it, I mean, it, it very well is possible that he was thinking of running, that he wasn't at the Mexican border. <laughs> they didn't catch him on cameras trying to cross the border or something like that. So, um, motive, what, what you, you think that Scott did it? Yes. Yes. Um, what do you think his motive was? I think in 2002, Scott Peterson's life began to change. Lacey and Scott were described as being uh, in a happy marriage, being a great couple, being great for each other. Uh, and they, their marriage seemed to start off as pursuits that they enjoyed to pursue together. Uh, it was a team effort. And I think that in 2002, they get a house in Modesto near her family, and Lacey makes it very apparent that she wants kids. And I think Scott, who, turn, who turns 30 in 2002, maybe doesn't want to let go of his 20s yet. And he's feeling maybe boxed in by being away from his family and being closer to her family. And he's in a job that uh, he's not happy with. And he does not want to be a father. He says this to several people. He does not want kids. He says it to so, us. Uh, he makes mention with... Lacey's family that he's excited to have a child in a way, but consistently in other accounts to many other people, he says, I don't want kids. In 2002, he's expecting to be a father. Yeah. And the closer he gets to uh, the due date for Connor, the more I think it's becoming very apparent that he's being boxed in, quote unquote, in his mind, into this okay. lifestyle. All right. So it sounds to me like you're saying that he wanted a life that did not involve children to be more free and stuff like that. Yes. I think he wanted maybe what he had before with Lacey and that changed the fundamental nature of, of, of their family changed. Okay. Like it was no longer just Lacey and Scott. It's going to be Lacey and Scott and Connor. And Scott was not ready for that. Scott did not want that. Okay. So he didn't, so again, what I'm hearing you say is he was, you think his motive is just that he wants a, a responsibility-free life, a life that does not involve children. Not entirely. That's one. Second thing he is he does get involved with Amber Fry, and I think he finds that more exciting than okay. his life with Lacey is, is at that point. And I think he's emotionally disconnected from Lacey at that point. Uh, due to her pregnancy, due to his fearing being a father, yeah, both, both, both. Okay. yeah, and uh, he does not want to be hated by anybody, by at least his family, which I think he does actually love and respect. I, I think he was very close. With yes, him, I yeah. think so. So I think he, in his mind, he he can't divorce Lacey. Obviously, he can't divorce Lacey because she's pregnant. Uh, that makes him seem even more like a monster. So So killing her is better? So Lacey has what? to So Lacey has to dis disappear. Okay, so backing up back to your motive, I, I think it's interesting that you are saying um that he wants this kind of life where he is not a father and things like that. And then he goes on to date Amber Fry who has a child already. Yes. So he's married to a woman who is pregnant with his child and then in order to get away from responsibilities and be more free, he then dates a woman who has a child. He does, but he also says he's okay with this. You have to realize that if unfortunately he's gone and he's free to date Amber as he pleases, it doesn't mean that he's going to move in with her or have to have that same household that, he would have had Lacey. According to investigators, he only had three or four dates with Amber Fry. So, um, I do you call that a relationship? I don't know. I think that Amber made a little bit more out of that relationship than there really was. Um, he does call her at incredibly inappropriate times, but I mean, I find it odd that he would be unsatisfied with family life with one woman and completely satisfied with it with another. Um, it also, I, I just, I don't think it was family life though with the other. I think it was 
I mean, there was a kid in the picture, yes, but it was not, he was not being a dad. Oh, to that child. Okay. Right. Okay. That, that's a fair point. He was not expected that's to be a, a father point. to, he was not right. expected to be a father to that child. Right. I mean, I also think it's very interesting. They, they never, other than Scott cheating on Lacey numerous times, there was never anything wrong in their relationship. There was no history of abuse. There was nothing. Um, so I'm a little puzzled as to why suddenly you are, uh, rationalizing that and saying it's because he suddenly was afraid to be a father and, uh, that was more responsibility than he really wanted. And it just took their, put their relationship in a different place. Yes. Yes. I feel I see in Scott a need to be liked by everybody. Well, he's a salesperson. So yeah, that's part of it. Yes. And I feel like if he divorced Lacey, who's like the nicest person ever, by all accounts, he's going to look like an asshole to friends, family, whoever else. And so, again, Lacey has to, in his mind, disappear. The prosecution theorizes um, that Scott killed Lacey on the 23rd of December and then dumped her body on the 24th. What are your feelings about that? I disagree with that. I don't think... She was killed on the 23rd. I think it was on the 24th. That's one thing. I, that's, I mean, I probably disagree with the prosecution on a couple things, and that's definitely one of them. Okay. I agree. I mean, the prosecution stated that um, Scott Lively killed her in their swimming pool. Um, and Frank, because she apparently went swimming because of being that pregnant, it would ease her back and things like that. But it was 37 degrees that morning. Um, there's no way she was swimming in 37 degrees. The pool was not heated. Also, there were at least three witnesses that saw her on December 24th uh, walking the dog. Um, and there was um, one witness saw her confront burglars that were across the street from their house. But before we get to that, I mean, Modesto in itself, the area that they were living in was not a great area. They, there was a lot of crime. Several nights before, there was a van spotted um, that was apparently casing houses. Um, there also downtown was uh, another pregnant woman who was uh, someone tried to assault her. Um, so... Not only were there witnesses that saw Lacey that day, there were also some other crimes and some other odd things that kind of had happened um, in that area. There was a woman's sandal that was found down the street from their house, which was never taken into evidence. Um, her shoes were never found. Uh, so that sandal very well could have been hers. Uh, but nobody ever took it into account. Another witness saw that same brown van driving away with a woman's coat stuck in it, which very well could have been Lacey's. Um, when the police were asked to investigate this brown van and the burglary, they said, no, that burglary didn't happen until the 26th. It didn't happen on the 24th which is impossible because by the 26th, there was media all over the place. There's no way somebody could have brokerized that house with news media standing in front of it. Um, so another witness says that Lacey was yelling at the people who were in the brown van. So I find that um, personally, whether, whether Scott did it or not, the police should have investigated some of these things a lot more thoroughly than they did. They, when they investigated, and I apologize, listeners, I'm using air quotes that you can't see. <laughs> when they investigated, they did catch the people in the brown van and all of their investigation consisted of when they were caught. The first thing that the gentleman said was, I had nothing to do with that Lacey Peterson lady who disappeared without being asked that question, he offered that, which to me sounds very suspicious, considering there are eyewitnesses that place him and his van at the last known whereabouts of where Lacey was. There's more evidence linking that guy to her disappearance than there is linking Scott, who wasn't even there. So for me, I just wish that the police would have investigated 
more of the leads that were happening at that time. There is also another woman named Evelyn Hernandez who disappeared on May 1st of that year, who was also pregnant, nine months pregnant, um, who was found floating in the bay, not far from where Lacey was found. And she had no head, no hands and no feet, just like Lacey. To me, that sounds like those cases might be related, but the police never did any investigation about Evelyn Hernandez. So that bothers me. Again, there were leads that were not followed up. There were witnesses that gave statements that were never spoken to again until the defense started digging in, but the police never questioned them. It's that kind of lack of investigation. They immediately focused everything on Scott because his alibi was so flimsy. He was alone in a boat. It is not up to a police officer to decide who did it. It is up to the police officers to gather evidence and to take statements. It's not up to them to pull an investigation in a certain way. And I, I just feel like if if he was if he was so smart, he would have been a much better actor. And he would have done things a lot differently. He wouldn't have, if he did it, he wouldn't have tried to sell his wife's, wife's car. He would have tried to get sympathy. He would have done all of these things probably over the top if he did do it to demonstrate what a good husband he was and all of that to make people genuinely feel sorry for him. If he didn't want to be not liked by people, uh, as you have mentioned, um, I kind of feel like he would have acted a little bit differently if that truly was his motive. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, that about this case, I mean, his attitude, a, a good portion of it for me is just everyone responds to, to trauma and tragedy in different ways. Agreed. And it's hard to really judge somebody by their response and reactions to things that happen to them. And that argument never really has has sold me on his guilt. I find the piles and piles and piles of evidence, yet circumstantial evidence, but piles of evidence nonetheless in questions and, and, and the and the lies that he makes that just don't help him in any sense. Uh, which which is why I go back to you would think if he did do it, he would lie better. Like I, I just don't it doesn't make sense to me. Like, he can't be that stupid. <laughs> he has a lot of details about what he's done that day that some are so stupid that he, he includes that can be easily refuted. For me, I think the, the biggest issue is, again, with the, the physical evidence, um, the finding of the body and um, the plastic around the baby's neck. Uh, there was evidence that... The baby lived for um, a little bit outside the mother, which tells me that the baby lived longer than, you know, the mother did. And the baby was very well protected when it was in the water. Um, Lacey was not. She had several marks on her from both the tide and sea creatures and all of that. The baby really did not have as many. Uh, the baby also had, and this has been disputed, something on its ear um, that, I don't know, one person said it looked like electrical tape, and then another person said it was seaweed. So uh, because there were not really any good photographs and whatever was on the baby's ear was removed and never tested, um, which I also take issue with, we won't, we don't know what that was, but the, one of the initial people to look at that, uh, to look at the fetus, uh, said that it looked like electrical tape to him. Interesting. Yeah. I found that very interesting myself. Um, personally, I think she got into, a, a yelling match with the guys across the street who were robbing the house. And I think one of them either pushed her or did something and then looked around and thought, oh man, not only are we going to get caught for burglary, but we just assaulted this woman, throw her in the van. And they threw her in the van and brought her to friends of theirs who 
may or may not have been involved in, I hate to say it, listeners, cult, uh, because I really don't believe in that sort of thing. Um, but I think that she was brought to some rather nefarious people and perhaps went into labor either on the way or once she got there. And I think that a lot of it was accident. I think that they were curious as to what they were going to do with her body. And then all of a sudden they saw the news program about here's where Scott was fishing. We need someone to tell us the whereabouts. Another huge police mistake there. Um, so of course let's leave the bodies there. I don't think she gave birth to Connor before she died. I think she was, uh, thrown into the bay, uh, still pregnant. And I think, uh, Connor's fetus was, uh, not so much born. And I'm sort of, sorry to say this used term, but it, it, it's expunged from the body and what they call a coffin birth. Yeah. Gas okay. of the body push. That's a the popular fetus theory. Out. Yeah. Gas of the body push the, the, the fetus out. And, uh, so I think that that's consistent with the prosecution's argument, uh, in, in my theory. I, I don't know what to, what I feel about the um, the burglars. My question about the burglars, and I, I'm, I unfortunately haven't followed up on this, is did the burglars have a history of violence? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't. I think the satanic angle is a red herring. <laughs> I, I kind of do too. I mean, I, I apparently, according to a couple of investigators, there was cult activity in the area, but. I mean, people say cult activity, and I mean, it's, there's very, very few actual cults in the U.S. Um, that are devil worshippers, if you want to call them that, or whatever, or satanic cults, or whatever, I should say. Um, but, I mean, for me, the, the other issue with Scott dumping his wife's body was the boat. I've seen that boat. It is not a big boat. Um, you're trying to push your pregnant wife out of the boat pregnant women their 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 weight is awkward so trying to push her out of the boat would flip the boat over so that's the argument that the defense made and the defense had a a, a videotaped simulation of a man scott's size trying to push a, a, a shape that was Lacey's size and weight out of the boat mm -hmm. and the boat capsizing. Several times. The problem is that from the video that people saw that the boat was not the boat uh, in question. No, uh, agreed. It was not the boat in question. Um, they Obviously, it was still in evidence. They couldn't use that boat. Right. They used a, a, a boat that was just like it. It was not just like it. It was a different boat. It was, it was a different model of boat. Uh, okay. Uh, and but the size and the shape was exactly the same i no it was a different it was different it was just a different i mean I, i've seen the video it looks exactly the same argued by many that the the man this man playing scott pearson's role in this case it's very obvious he's trying to capsize the boat that, that could that could very well be that could very well be so but i do know from riding from being in boats myself small boats it, it's really difficult when you're in the water to maintain your weight enough to to either push something or throw something heavy off of the boat without capsizing it. Because of the way water is in the boat, something that heavy, you're going to struggle to keep your own balance, which is already a struggle in a boat. So... It's not as if he was tossing a sack of flour out of the boat where you can get some leverage on it and things like that. So, I mean, it, there, it was theorized that he pushed Lacey out of the boat along with several weights that were tied to her, which would have added about 40 more pounds to her, which is a lot of weight for that little boat. So the second part of the simulation that the defense wanted to submit was judge denied that simulation, the, the videotaped simulation. He offered instead that a third party could simulate it, that both the defense and prosecution could watch and judge would watch as they did this. 
to include in the trial? And the defense said no. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I can't speak to the defense and what their decision-making process is. Um, I do know that the juries were allowed to go and sit in Scott's actual boat, but it was never in water, which I thought that that would have been better for the jurors to sit in that boat in the water. But I get from a judge's perspective that might have been putting jurors at risk if they tried to capsize the boat. Agreed. So, Agreed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I understand why that didn't happen, but I also kind of feel like it's almost a fail trying to, like, you're sitting in a boat that's not in water. I'm not really sure what you want to accomplish. <laughs> uh, I mean, other than, you know, sitting and viewing the actual size of the boat. Yeah. Uh, or something like that. And and I, I don't dispute that it's hard to do what I think Scott did. And I think that Scott got wet or maybe, maybe some, the boat almost capsized or got water got into the boat because he does say that he got wet during his fishing trip. He came home and was so wet and I guess smelled like the, like this, like the ocean that he immediately did laundry of his clothes. Yeah. I mean, whenever you go fishing, you always stink when you right. go back. So exactly. it, it does, doesn't surprise. So, so he did get wet. I mean, uh, I, I think that I'm dubious and skeptical about, People saying that the boat could have, would have to capsize if he did what he... Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, yeah. I hear you, I hear you. So I hear what you're saying, that you still definitely think that Scott did it, and there's no swaying you from that. No, I don't think there is. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I, I don't know, frankly, whether he did do it or not. I do know that there was... A lot of different parts to this case that apparently were not investigated or were not investigated properly. Um, the forensics is kind of sketchy. Uh, for me, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more investigation, uh, further follow-up on uh, other leads and some other things that were happening in that community at that time. Um, and none of those follow-ups ever happened. Most of the witnesses were never followed up with. Um, and again, it, it's not the police's job to steer the case. It's the police's job to gather evidence and to talk to people. This case was so crazy with the media making up stories here and there, telling truths one day, suspicious other things another day, that you, as you know, anyone who was following this case at the time, you never knew what you were going to hear. And um, that sways the public, and it swayed public opinion. And I think opinions were already that Scott did it before he ever even went to trial, before anyone heard any evidence. And that's not how just how our justice system works. So, I mean, I, I do believe that he acted very suspiciously. And it is quite possible that he did do it. But based on the evidence from the trial and the evidence that I've researched, he should not have been found guilty at that trial. So I am very happy that due to juror misconduct and um, some other things that he is actually going to get retried. Is he getting retried? It's retried for his sentencing trial, not retried for the whole thing. Well, that that's their plan. Yes. They're going to have another trial. Yes. So... Um, so we have uh, kind of conflicting opinions. I don't fully believe that uh, Scott is guilty of this crime based on the evidence that I have seen. I think there are far too many other witnesses uh, who have seen other things. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not 100% that, that Scott's guilty. Um, I am 100% that he shouldn't have been found guilty. Uh, so there's a little bit of a difference there. But um, I don't know. Uh, I think either way... Either theory is true enough. I stand, except for the date they say Lacey Peterson was murdered, I stand by the prosecution's argument, and I think that is true enough. Whether you believe Scott Peterson is guilty or innocent, the heartbreaking fact remains that his pregnant wife, Lacey, 
went missing on Christmas Eve in 2002, and her body was discovered several months later, and her unborn son, Connor, was never able to grow up and have a life of his own. That's the tragedy of this story. Whether you believe one of our theories or have your own, it still is a tragic end for Lacey and her unborn son, Connor. This ends this episode of True Enough. This episode was produced, written, and edited by your co-hosts, Catherine Duvall and Brandon McCowan. Thanks go out to our sources, which are listed in our show notes. All music was provided by Anchor.fm. True Enough is created by us and distributed through Anchor. You can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash true-enough. From there, you can message us, or you can now email us at trueenoughnation at gmail.com. So please send us your questions, thoughts, opinions, and hate mail about any of our episodes. Also, please subscribe to us in whichever podcast app you like so you don't miss our next episode where we try to determine what is true enough to be believed.